You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Should have turned in your scriptures to the book of Mark again, chapter 12. We've made it to verse 18. Mark 12, 18. While you're on your way there, we're going to read through 27. Let's look at our picture from last week. I had a couple turned in, a couple of our regulars, and it's Malachi this week. And uh, I think Malachi, if you took his pictures and just flipped through them, you would get the story of Mark uh, through here and, and see that in his cartoons. Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Why put me to the test? Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? And they answer, Caesar's. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Malachi, you picked up on it. It's great. I love, love that you're following with us and any kids that are and there's no uh, blank paper in the back and let me just pull plug in adults too you can draw you can make artwork uh, use it for God's glory I know you you desire that but you can even do that here so let's do that then let's read God's word together starting in verse 18 Mark 12 some more opposition coming to Jesus here And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let me pray for us again. Father, we come to you today to worship you now by listening and reading and feeding on your very word, for it is the best food for us. So Lord, help us to understand your word uh, and apply it to our lives in the year 2018 and to our lives and what they will look like in 2020 and 2030 if we should live that long. So Lord, guide us uh, to live according to your word. What we just read is from you. This entire scripture is from you. And we know, Lord, without your spirit, we do not understand. So Lord, um, give us spiritual understanding that we cannot in our natural minds. Help us, Lord, uh, through this, and I pray through this, we see your great glory, that you'd be magnified uh, in the text and what I have to say uh, in our time together. 
We just pray your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I join with the others in saying happy Mother's Day to the moms that are with us. The work that you do, whether it's at midnight or in the afternoon or whenever, it is valuable work and we're thankful for it, even maybe praying for grandkids and kids that are far away. You do that work and it's valuable. But in a day of social media like Facebook or other, whatever the more current ones, maybe Facebook in there, or the days before such a thing as Facebook, there are temptations that arise with moms, and let's just say everyone, but with moms of comparison among moms to other, right? what others are doing, maybe going something like this. Uh, you know, my kids are now, they're performing at this level. How does that compare to April's kids? I'm not, if anybody here is named April, I don't think so. That's why I try to pick names. Okay, how does that compare? Uh, maybe here's another one. Mine seem behind academically while other moms, they seem ahead. Or my days seem scattered. Often my to-do list looks pretty much the same at the end of the week as it did at the beginning. I just can't get it done. But mom so-and-so, she's got it done that day. Maybe certain moms have blogs or they work out a lot. or They're always going from here to there. Well, I just feel like I'm doing good if I make it through the day. I haven't lost any of my kids yet, right? Maybe sometimes you feel like those are your days. So the question really becomes for anyone with the title mom, since it's Mother's Day, and you can see I'm tying this in where we're going, really becomes what makes a great mom? What makes a great mom? Or, by the way, to include everyone in this room, what makes a great dad, grandfather, student, farmer, businessman, so on, okay? When I say mom, put yourself in there if you're not mom today. What makes a great mom? If we get our cues just from the culture around us, even just people around us, we're going to see many things that seek our attention and say, that's what makes a great mom. She just posted that. That's what it takes to be a great mom. Today we've gathered together as the body of Christ to not study from our culture, but really study from God's holy word, what makes a great mom. And so we want to study his word and see his power. And I think even this passage can apply to that. Though motherhood, it doesn't say a passage on motherhood. It's not mentioned. Though we could get away with it, with, you know, they had, she, she married and they had no offspring. That involves, right, a mothering idea. So it's kind of there. Um, as we go just um, expositionally through the scripture, we end up here on Mother's Day. But I think God and his providence, um, there's some application for us through here. So let's study the passage and make some application as we think about even what makes a great mom, what makes a great dad, and so forth. We want to learn, get our cues from God and His Word and His power. Um, As we look, just look down at verse 18. Here enters the next group of questioners. Uh, We're used to this now. We've seen chief priests and scribes and elders uh, come back in chapter at the end of chapter 11 asking what authority Jesus speaks. Why, whose authority are you speaking of? Uh, last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians asking about paying taxes to Caesar. And now here's our n- next group. We've just been a, 
uh, a line of groups here. Here's the Sadducees. Here they come, and they've got their own question really meant to discredit Jesus and dishonor Him, make Him look foolish, whatever it would take to destroy Him or maybe just just put Him in His place. So here they come along. We've talked about them briefly, the Sadducees. They've got their ties to the the priesthood and kind of the the temple area, really, uh, made up of wealthy families, from what I gather from my research and looking at them. Uh, This passage actually tells us, it's actually helpful, it tells us some of what they believed. Theologically, verse 18 says uh, that Sadducees say there is no resurrection. So we can theologically get, okay, here's what they believe. Now this isn't the only difference, but this does set the Sadducees apart from the Pharisees who did believe in resurrection. We'll look at that in a little bit. Acts 23.8, Luke tells us this about the Sadducees, that they, they say that there is no resurrection. They say there is nor, uh, nor an angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So now we've got these groups. We've got Pharisees. We looked at them last week. Resurrection, angel, spirits, that sort of afterlife, spiritual worth. Sadducees, not so much. No resurrection, no angel, no, no spirit. Uh, One commentator points out that whereas the Pharisees had come in our discussion last week, really here, same day, they had come with questions politically motivated, maybe get Jesus in trouble that way. Here the Sadducees come with more of a theological, you know, we don't believe in the resurrection, but we're going to ask some questions about it anyway. And you can tell they're trying to get at Jesus. So moving into verse 19, they kind of shroud this trickery if it can be that with jesus but they shroud it in the scripture themselves look at verse 19 uh, they say teacher you think they believe that no but they address him teacher moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother now the sadducees they are not in error here regarding this command or this teaching of Moses that actually comes from Deuteronomy 25 for time's sake we're not going there but you can look it up later Deuteronomy 25 5 through 10 and according to Deuteronomy 25 the purpose in this ordinance was really one of maintaining the line of the deceased husband so you've got this couple this this wife married to your husband the husband dies And there's no children, so the brother-in-law must come and marry uh, this woman so that they would have offspring. And the first first offspring was to be named after the deceased brother, not the the actual one that had helped to conceive that child, but the one that had passed away. Um, And so that was kind of the the setup. The brother-in-law takes the widow of his brother, marries her, um, and continues, really continues that line, the descendants of that of that family. So that's a biblical idea that the Sadducees bring up. And they brought up what Moses wrote, and now, now they go, okay, we've, brought, we've got Moses, now the hypothetical. And that's, what, that's what we read. Let's read it again. They bring up this hypothetical situation to test Jesus and make him look foolish. It's verses 20 through 22. They say, now here, here's the deal. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. All right, then the second took her. He died. He left no offspring. And the third likewise. 
And the seven, so there's seven that you can see it's hypothetical. Seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now the scenario gets, or maybe it's supposed to get, hard for Jesus because now this terrible event of the loss of a husband for this wife really turns into seven dead husbands. And then the wife dies as well. And so this sets up, okay, here's the scenario, and I think they're thinking, we got him now, and here comes the punch of 20, verse 23. So, remember, these are people that do not believe in the resurrection. They ask, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. That's the question. Here's how one commentator, James Edwards, he states this question of the Sadducees. Their question is framed on the Pharisaic and rabbinic assumption that the world to come is is essentially an extension of earthly conditions. Does that make sense? So they're Pharisees. They're they're almost arguing against the Pharisees here that the world to come, it's an extension of the earthly conditions. This resurrection is an extension of this. He says, including the married state although under more glorious conditions. Uh, One scholar even pointed out that the Pharisees had in fact answered this question that they posed to Jesus. They had tackled this and answered it. And here's, they came up with that, well, the first husband, that would be the husband in the resurrection. So that was actually their answer. But again, what's the aim of the Sadducees? What are they trying to get at of Jesus? And here's where I'm going to read a quote from Alfred Edersheim on this, this approach of the Sadducee. Here's their aim. Here's what they're getting at with Jesus. Their object, he says, was certainly not serious argument, but to use the much more dangerous weapon of ridicule. Persecution the populace might have resented. For open opposition, all would have been, uh, all would have been prepared. But to come with icy politeness, speaking of the Sadducees, to come with icy politeness and philosophic calm and by a well-turned question to reduce the renowned Galilean teacher to silence and show the absurdity of his teaching would have been to inflict on his cause the most damaging blow. They aim at discrediting Jesus and I think they think They've got him with this one. This is the tough one. Just try and get out of this one. And what do we know from all the other times? You think maybe some of the others would have said, don't even, don't try that question. It's not going to work. But they ask it nonetheless. And so in verse 24, Jesus, the great teacher, the one with authority, responds again. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I think this is at the heart of the problem of the Sadducee and what we can learn from this passage. It at least narrows us down to it. He speaks to the Sadducees and he says, really, in essence, here is why you guys are wrong. The Greek word, you have the word wrong in your verse there. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Wrong. The Greek word there is going to sound familiar like an English word. It's planao, which means to lead astray or deceive or be mistaken. Planao. Now I say it, I don't say a lot of Greek words, but that one, planao, 
from it, our English word, we get planet, the word for planets, these, these so-called wandering stars. A uh, little astronomy lesson here, but uh, for me as well. The, the, so you look out in the night sky and all the stars up there, as they would have, and, and they called all these stars, they're really fixed stars because they're typically in the same places. You know, they move with the night, but they're in the same places. But the planets of our solar system don't do this. Those that are in astronomy probably know more of this than I do. But the planets kind of wander through the sky. They're in this place or that place. This, they're planeo. They're, they're wandering. And there's this idea here in this text of these Sadducees are wandering. They have not a fixed reference point. Jesus says, here's why you're wandering. Here's why you're going all over the place. This is why you're wrong. Okay, it helps us to think in a planetary motion. Next time you see one, think of the Sadducees. They're wandering. And we see that. And so Jesus brings us to that and says, here's why. And he answers in the last part of that verse, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You can trace back, we won't do it for time, but you can trace back some of this you know, this word in here. Um, It goes back a little bit to where we've been in the last chapter or two. Uh, They don't know something. They know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Here's again, James Edwards says this. I think it's fitting to understand what when Jesus says this, what it means to these hearing his words. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. He says this, the audacity of Jesus' accusation of the Sadducees would be like claiming that Wall Street knows nothing of finance. Okay, Like walking up the doors of, the Wall, of Wall Street and saying, you guys don't know a thing about finance. That's what he was doing. He goes on, he says this, uh, scripture, or the Torah, And power, think of the Sanhedrin. Remember that ruling council uh, containing Sadducees, which they were a part of? So you've got Scripture, the Torah, and then the the power, the Sanhedrin. They were precisely the Sadducees' stock in trade. The uh, The two matters in which they majored. They majored in these things of of, uh, Torah, Scripture, and power. This is right up their alley. In ma- I'm reading him again. In magisterial authority, Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know least. They are vulnerable, not at their weak points, but at their strong points. They have gone astray, not at the periphery or in the incidentals of their belief system, but at the heart and center of their beliefs. Following verse 24 then, I believe verse 25 seems to answer what the Sadducees don't know about the power of God, and then verse 26 about the scriptures uh, that are written. So in one sense, Jesus in verse 24 brings up, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And now as we move into verse 25, uh, he's answering, here's how you don't know the power of God. And then verse 26, here's how you don't know the scriptures. So it's I believe they're kind of separated out here as he answers. So let's first look at the power of God. What don't they know about the power of God? In verse 25, where Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus doesn't say if 
they rise from the dead, but when they rise from the dead, Jesus affirms the resurrection, and then he answers this question, and we'll look at angels in just a minute, but this question of marriage. What will this be like? They don't marry? They're not given in marriage? Uh, He says in the resurrection there will not, not be marrying or being given in marriage. So I look, I've got a, I've got a book in, on my shelf by Randy Elkhorn entitled Heaven. Maybe some of you have read this um, before. I've not read the whole thing, but I read this part and it's helpful for what he says regarding heaven and this question, will there be marriage? What, it, you mean I'm not going to be united to my wife, my husband, this sort of idea? Here's what he says. I find this interesting. If we remember marriage, the purpose of it. He says, the Bible does not teach there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, it makes clear there will be marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride and we'll all be part of it. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality it mirrors. And he's getting this from Ephesians 5. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. Once we reach the destination, the signpost becomes unnecessary. He goes on to say, earthly marriage is a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. It's not to say we won't, we won't know uh, loved ones or relationships in some sense will, will continue but our earthly marriages, we know this from Paul's writing, are pointing to something. They're pointing to the heavenly marriage of the Lamb and the Bride, Jesus' church, and this ultimate marriage uh, that takes place when He comes again for His church. So in that sense, you can say, yes, there is marriage, not the marriage I think we're thinking of in that. Well, he goes on to say, Jesus says, so they're not, Marry. They don't marry, they're not given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. States that when the dead rise, they will be like angels in heaven. Theologically, I believe this is the idea of glorification. These glorified bodies that we will receive in the resurrection. So I don't think, verse 25, it's not a statement that upon death we become angels. It's not saying that, but the appearance is like that. Of angels, They're like angels. We're going to look at a couple passages on this before we come back to Mark. This idea of what will we be like in the resurrection. So let's first go to really a main passage is 1 Corinthians 15. And time doesn't allow us to read um, the whole thing, but I want to read just a little bit. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 through 49, gives us a picture as we're reading this in mark and we say we'd like to know more what is the resurrection what's our body what's it going to be like romans or i'm sorry first corinthians 15 great section really the entire that that tells us because it's been talking about christ being raised from the dead and these sorts of things but here and i'll just read 42 through 49 uh, paul writes this he says so is it with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable. He's talking about us, you know, sown, flesh, here. It's perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us in the flesh. We're of the dust. We're of Adam, born in the image of God, carrying on through Adam from here. Then he says, the second man is from heaven. Uh, I might have got sidetracked. I'm, I'll go back to verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is, there it is, the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Those in Christ will also bear the image of Christ in a body like his, whom, what, the disciples, they touched. They really felt, they really looked at him. They recognized him, though not at, not at first, right? Additionally, you might think of the transfiguration where the disciples saw and they recognized Moses and Elijah up on the mount. They were alongside Jesus. Remember that there was sort of an angelic light, a radiance, an intense whiteness to this? I think that's the idea of this like angels. So they were recognizable, but there was an angelic-like quality to them. Uh, Again, I said we don't have time to read more here, but let's go to one more place as we think then about the power of God in the resurrection. I want you to turn to Philippians. Just keep going a little further to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20. So Philippians 3, Uh, 20 through 21. How are these Sadducees wrong about the power of God, this resurrection? Here's Here's what Paul again says to the church at Philippi. He says, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How? He answers, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. There's power going on in this transformation. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too will we. And it's by the power of God. There's a sense in which we're already raised in Christ, aren't we? We're dead to sin. Those that have come to Christ for salvation, dead to sin, but already alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6 puts it that way. God is powerful. And so all we who are in Christ will be transformed. This old body, putting on the new, transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus. Well, as we head back to Mark, it's the power of God to raise the dead, really. Spiritually, the dead in sin, 
and then physically at the resurrection. Jesus then in verse 26, if we come back to Mark 12, he cites the other thing that they don't know. Remember, they, you, don't, you guys don't know the power of God? He's a powerful, raising to life from the dead God. And the other thing they don't know is the Scriptures. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And so Jesus takes us and them back to the Scriptures, even to Scriptures they themselves would adhere to, the Pentateuch. They did not take the rest of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch is just the first five books of the Bible. They took that as authoritative. The rest, the Sadducees did not. And so Jesus takes them back to the place where they would have said, yeah, this is our grouping of Scripture. This is what we uh, believe. This is what we follow. And he takes them back to this passage about the bush. One commentator pointed out, this is Jesus' way of saying, go back to Exodus chapter 3, Verse, I think it's six is where it's at. It's his way of saying that because back here, they did not have chapter and verse number. Those have been added later. Here's just, it's like him saying, go back to chapter so-and-so in this passage about the bush, this passage from Exodus. And so it's like he's saying, turn back there. When God had spoken this, and we're not going, you can look at that on your own. It's Exodus chapter 3. But when God had spoken to Moses in Exodus 3, he spoke about Abraham, right? You see that in the verse. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, at the time he spoke this to Moses, had been dead about 500 years. This is 500 years when God is speaking to Moses from this burning bush and saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He identifies himself that way. And God does not say he was the God, I was the God of Abraham, but rather he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what, and you see it here in the text, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Currently, I am. I am who I am. It says later in Exodus 3. So Jesus concludes then in verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. He goes on to say, you're quite wrong. Jesus is proving via Exodus 3 and the burning bush that God is the God of the living. Abraham's alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive. They're not dead. And these three whom the Sadducees would, I think, venerate as Old Testament figures, they're they're alive. They're not dead. What's interesting here as well is that Jesus uses a passage of Scripture to prove that this is who God is, that he's the God of the living. I think Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have just said, you guys are wrong. And here's the right way. But he uses the scriptures of what they and us, thankfully by God's grace, have to prove that he is the God of the living, that there's a resurrection. And so Jesus has, in fact, taken their own scriptures. He didn't have to go elsewhere, though there's other places. It's... It's more faint, this idea of resurrection. It's faint in the Old Testament. It's there and you can find it. There's other places, Isaiah, I think it's Daniel 12, 2. There's, there's a place there. Um, 
Jesus takes them back. Here's the scriptures you guys believe. And I know you don't believe in the resurrection because right, Mark has told us so. I know you don't believe in that. Here it is, and I'm showing you this from your very own scriptures. The Pentateuch proves God. He is the God of the living. And so Jesus tells them at the end, again, you are quite, it's a word there, wrong. You guys are quite, now that you're studied up on stars and planets, you guys are a bunch of planets. That's what he's telling them. You're a bunch of wandering stars. You're going here and there. You don't know what. What don't they know? The scriptures They don't know the power of God. So we studied in Sunday school class, even this morning, that God reveals Himself to us that we may see. These these ones, though they know, they don't know. There's a different knowing. We were talking about that uh, earlier. Well, let me close here with really four takeaways, points maybe from this passage, again, to tie it back to moms and, again, every, those that are also listening, okay, back for moms. What do we gain on a Mother's Day from this passage, even about, I mean, no offspring and the Sadducees, and what, what do we conclude from this and take away? I think there's four, and, and I'm sure there's more, but four things. So here's one. Moms, there is resurrection hope. There is resurrection hope. Your tired and worn out body, even more so your tired and worn out soul, will be transformed and glorified by the power of God as you are in Christ. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life, Paul says. And he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. God brings resurrection hope through Jesus. So moms, there's resurrection hope. There's a hope. This, this body is wearing thin. It feels worn out. This is not all there is. It's not an eternal life. It's not just a continuation of the wearing out and the, the rat race and the following and comparing. It's a glorified life in the presence of God himself. So there's resurrection hope. Number two, moms, our God is powerful. Do you believe that? We serve, in Christ, we serve a powerful God. Do you know Him? Again, not knowing of Him, but knowing this powerful God. Listen to what this power says, even to us, from 2 Corinthians 12.9. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you feel weak, Mom? That's where God's power reigns, and He's glorified in that. His grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Number three, moms. Be moms in the Word. Be in the Scriptures. We cannot learn of this powerful God. We cannot learn of resurrection hope or any hope without the Word of God. It's it's the Word where we learn That this God spoke creation into being. Let there be light, and there was. It's this God who led a people out of bondage to slavery. This God that came in the flesh, he was crucified and yet rose again that we might be with him forever. It's the word where we discover these things. Moms, if you do anything without 
looking around at other moms and how these kids are doing and their grandkids and all these things. And guys, we're in the same boat. Look to the Word, to be guided by the Word. And lastly, number four, moms, behold thy God. And it goes back to our God being powerful. Behold this great I am. The I am is fixed. The I am is fixed and steady when our hearts are wandering. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. He's not wandering, is he? Not figuring out which way to go. I don't know. Just follow me. We'll get there. He's the I am. He knows. Be steadfast on him. Do not follow your heart. (laughs) Follow his word, which leads us to him. Follow him. The Jesus of Scripture, Jesus and the power of God, that we wouldn't be like Sadducees who wander like planets. To help you out, I've put uh, Escalis in the bulletin to put Isaiah 12.2 on the bottom of your notes um, in the bulletin. It's a starter verse. It's a place to go. If you've not been in the Word lately or not been in the Word much, here's a starter verse. Maybe clip this out and memorize it as a mom or dad or fill in the blank, student. And that in it you see the power of God to save and trust in and not fear. Listen to Isaiah 12.2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. That's really important. Who is our salvation? Our salvation is not that finished to-do list. It's not how the week's gone or it's going to go. It's not how somebody treats me. My salvation's not in how my kids turn up. My salvation is in God. So I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. So what makes a great mom? A mom who is in the word. And who, we would say by God's grace, right? Who knows the great I am and his great power. Be a great mom by fixing your eyes on a great savior and a great God who is the I am. Let me pray for you. Lord, you are merciful and kind to us sinners. And we thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, uh, you inhabit the heavens. Where on earth would you dwell? You dwell infinitely. You are a great God. And Lord, you have provided a way for moms and dads and businessmen and students and brothers and sisters and kids to come to you, to you, to your presence, to your glory by the salvation that's in Jesus Christ. Father, help us, and today especially, help the moms to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Would you help us, Lord? We are prone to wander. Lord, fix us back on your word, on who you are, May we be a people of your word. We ask in your name. Amen.